0: Welcome to Canada's History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Kessler. Today I'm speaking with Dean Robinson, author of Howie Marenz, Hockey's First Superstar. Robinson grew up in Stratford, Ontario, the same town as Marenz, who is one of the NHL's greatest offensive players of all time. It has been Robinson's lifelong passion to share Morenz's story. When did people in Stratford start to take notice of Howie Marenz?
1: In the uh, spring of 1917, the the Mitchell Juveniles won the Western Ontario Hockey Championship. And their center that year, or Rover, as that position was called in those days, was the 15-year-old Marins, who of course lived in Mitchell. Um, Soon after that win, the Marins family moved from Mitchell to Stratford, and Howie's reputation as a hockey player went with them. And really, in, in Stratford, he just picked up where he left off in Mitchell. The teams he played for in Stratford... Went farther afield than those in Mitchell, and when they did, he was—he soon became a well-known hockey player throughout the province.
0: And then, from there, did um, when did the rest of the country start to take notice? Like, when did the scouts start to take notice of him?
1: I, I think mostly when he was, uh, like, when they the the intermediate, senior, and uh, junior teams in Stratford often found themselves playing against teams from uh, toronto and and larger centers and there were always hockey people uh... bird dogging at those at those games that sometimes the scouts were were referees who uh... who kind of bird dog for teams and would phone in information about players they saw uh, sometimes they were sports writers and um how you know what if, if you're on a Stratford team, and you're beating a Toronto team, somebody's going to take notice, and uh, see what happens.
0: <laughs> uh, so, um, it's been well documented that Howie Morenz actually played for the Stratford Junior and Senior team at the same time. How did he manage to do that?
1: Well, actually, he uh, he played for three teams at the same time here in Stratford, and in in January of uh, 1918, he was called up by the called up to the Stratford Junior team. So soon after the family moved to uh, Stratford. At At that time, that junior team was called the Midgets, which I know is confusing by today's standards, but that was the name. And they had been a struggling team in the Ontario Hockey Association when they called him up. Now, he played well, but the Midgets overall didn't, at least in the Ontario Hockey Association. But then they went from the OHA to the Northern Hockey League. They were also entered in that league for playoffs, and... The Midgets that year won the championship. Now, by 1921-22, in addition to the Midgets and the center, city's intermediate team, the Indians, and they, the city's kind of vacillated between intermediate and senior, they always called the, the senior team the Indians, but it, they might have been playing intermediate or senior. Anyway, by 21-22, Howie was playing for both of those teams. He was also playing for the Grand Trunk Railway team. And his sister told me there were times when he was playing hockey as many as six times a week for those three teams. Now, the railway team wasn't an intensive schedule, but they would they would travel by train and go down to Montreal, for instance, for a tournament, and then the Montreal team would come up here for a tournament, and uh, they would play other railway teams. so he would he would often spend, because he was playing so much hockey, he'd often spend spend most of his shift in the locomotive shops, sleeping. In the cab of a locomotive, he loved hockey, but when he was playing that much, he had a little energy left for his day job. And in a, in that one of the teams he played for was the GTR team, the railway tended to overlook his naps in the locomotives.
0: So he got a little bit of extra treatment then, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, he sure did. Yeah, that's that's when he caught up in his sleep because he was, uh, you know, he could play for the junior intermediate uh, team one night and play for the railway team on the weekend and. The next week it could be reversed.
0: So then can you describe the way that was recruited to the NHL? I mean, obviously there wasn't going to be just one team that was pursuing him.
1: Well, in, in playing as much as he did, his reputation as a hockey player was hardly a secret. But he was better known in Ontario than anywhere else. And it was thought by many that if he were to turn pro, it would be in Toronto, because that's only 100 miles away and Toronto seemed to seem to gather up all of the, the players uh, in this part of the country. And indeed, the Toronto St. Pats had taken note of Howie, and in the spring of 1923, they offered him $1,000 to play in their last five regular season games, but he didn't bite. He didn't take the money. He didn't play. And by all accounts, he was a, a shy kid, and I've got this from several people. He was a shy kid who was happy playing hockey in Stratford, I think, too, He had his heart set in apprenticing in the railway shops. He really never, I think, pictured himself as a professional hockey player. But as spring turned to summer in 1923, the St. Pat's were ready to make a serious bid for his services. But the Montreal Canadiens were tipped off about that move by a sports writer, and the Habs were not unaware of Marin's because how he had played in Montreal and had played well as a member of the Grand Trunk Railway team out of Stratford. Anyway, the Canadians thought, in in light of getting the tip, they thought it worth their while to be able to to send a delegation to Stratford, and and that's what they did in July of 1923. And it took a lot of convincing. There was a long session at the Morin's dining table in Stratford, but they convinced Howie to give Montreal and the Canadians a try. Soon after they left, both Howie's father and Howie began having second thoughts about the deal. In August, just the next month, uh, Howie returned the Canadian's signing check and said that he'd had a change of heart. Leo Danderand, uh, who was running the Canadians at the time, immediately summoned him to Montreal for a visit and to meet some of the Canadians players. In the end, Howie agreed to report to the Habs training camp that that year was in Grimsby, Ontario. And it took Howie a while to get comfortable in Montreal, but ultimately it was a decision that neither side regretted. The, the St. Pat's and the Toronto uh, sporting community was were a little upset at that uh, that this one had gotten away. But indeed, um, the, it was really a case of the St. Pat's hadn't been earnest enough in, in trying to get him down to Toronto, and the Canadians had been been pretty eager to get him to Montreal.
0: Was he ever villainized for his choice to, of choosing Montreal over Toronto? Was he ever villainized in Toronto?
1: I, I don't think so. I, I In fact, I think there was a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of good vibes when he played in Toronto, uh, mainly because uh, you know Stratford was a railway town he'd been a railway player. Uh, trains ran a lot more often than they do today and when the Canadians came to uh, Toronto, there were an awful lot of Stratford people in the stands watching him in Toronto and I think he was he was uh he was such a good player, but he was also a classy guy he he uh, he he was friends uh, with with a lot of players on a lot of teams. Uh, and uh, I, I just don't think there was that. He, I never, I never sensed that there was any, any, any treatment like that. I mean, the, the Leafs uh, certainly didn't cheer when he scored goals, but I, I don't. They weren't, they weren't booing him out of the arena either.
0: Okay. Well, you've you've alluded to the fact that Moranz was obviously a skilled player. What was his playing style?
1: He wasn't a big guy. Not a not a big man even on skates, and uh, he considered his playing weight to be about 165 pounds, and he was rarely heavier than that. Uh, he was a good skater, but he wasn't the fastest guy in the league. He, was also, he also had a good shot, but it wasn't the hardest in the league, maybe not even the hardest on his team. The people I talked to who had seen him play all pointed to his toughness and his drive and his desire. And I, when I say tough, I don't mean that in the mean sense. He was able to take a hit, and he'd bounce right back. And he took plenty of hits because he was fearless when it came to, you know, trying to split the defence or cutting hard to the net. So it was probably his heart that defined his playing style. He loved the game and for him there was just one way to play it and that was at full tilt. He he took losses seriously. He often blamed the losses on himself, even though in fact they weren't his his fault. But he just he loved the game that much that he just and he showed that every night on the ice. He showed that.
0: Now, would you say that that's probably the number one reason why Montreal was so enamored, enamored with him?
1: Well, uh, in, his, in his first season in Montreal, the Canadians won the Stanley Cup uh, after he'd scored seven goals in six playoff games. So that's a great way to get the fans on your side. But more than that, he was a fun guy to watch. He wasn't afraid to try an end-to-end rush, and, and often he was successful at it. He played hard every game. The fans loved him for it. They loved his spirit. Off the ice, he would make appearances for the team. He, he played in golf tournaments. He was well-known in the city, which, by the way, he came to love. He was, uh, he was great with kids. Uh, there are stories of him stopping his car and getting out and playing a little road hockey and shinny with them for a few minutes as he was uh, driving maybe home from the rink to his house in Montreal. He never put himself above the team or above the fans. And I think mostly he took his small-town values to Montreal, and he remained true to them. And all the while, he and the Canadians won their share of games and Stanley Cups. He was a guy who was hard to dislike. Even opposing players said that.
0: So eventually there did come a time where Marenza was uh, traded away from Montreal. Um, So why did he not fit in with teams like Chicago, where he played two seasons, or uh, New York, where he only played 19 games?
1: In 33-34, in he and the Habs had an offseason. Uh, he was, he was a, a usual slow starter, and he had the slow start that season. It took him 11 games to get his first goal. Then he suffered a broken ankle and missed the month of January. And when he came back, he was a bit overweight, uh, had lost some of his jump. And for the first time in his career, he was booed. He was actually booed in the Montreal Forum. So despite the problems... Uh, The Habs did finish second in their division, but then they were bounced from the playoffs in in two straight games. And as the season ended, the frustrated Marins talked about retirement. This was the first time that that had ever come out, at least publicly. And Dan Duran was frustrated too, and and that led to his trading Marins to Chicago in October of thirty four. One of the reasons, he said, was to get Howie away from the Montreal Bluebirds and uh, give him a fresh start in a different city. And he also arranged for Marenz to get more money playing for the Blackhawks. But Howie never warmed to the trade. And eventually he and the Chicago owner had a falling out, all of which led to Marenz being dealt to the New York Rangers. It wasn't that Marenz didn't like the uh, didn't like the players in Chicago. He had some good friends in Chicago. He, he, there were some players on that team that he'd played with before. Uh, so it wasn't as if he was playing with a bunch of of all new players but he just didn't warm to the whole setting. Uh, and while he played a little bit better in New York than he had in Chicago, he, he wasn't the Marenz of old there. He liked, he liked New York a little bit better than Chicago, but uh, he, just, he just didn't have the heart. It just, it just wasn't there. And that really didn't matter to Cecil Hart. Cecil Hart had been a, uh, his, one of his coaches in Montreal, and, and he was returned to the Montreal coaching job after the Canadians were sold to new owners, and when that happened, one of his conditions, one of Hart's conditions, was that Howie be returned to the Canadians, and the owners complied. So he came back to the city um, and the fans that he loved, and that kind of rekindled the fire in him. he He said that more than once. He said, "This is where I belong. this is where I really want to play." And uh, he was rejuvenated, and it showed. It showed on the ice, it showed uh, with him wherever he was. His heart wasn't in Chicago, it wasn't in New York, and without his heart, Howie was just another hockey player. He was back with his friends and
0: family in Montreal, and he was happy. Uh, well, you've already mentioned a few of the big games, but were there any other defining moments in Morenz's professional career that he's known for now? I mean, he was named one of the top. He was named the top player in the first half half century for the 1900s. So, what were some of the big games or big moments in his career?
1: I I'm not sure. I I think about that periodically too. Um, I'm not sure there was a Paul Henderson-type goal in his career, in Howie's career. At the same time, though, there were a few games in which the fans didn't expect him to do everything that would give them a win, to do something at least that would give them a win or lead to a win. He was always a threat. He was revered by his teammates and fans, and he was feared by the opposition. And in three of five seasons, he was named the league's most valuable player, and in two of those seasons, he led the league in scoring. So I think rather than defining moments he had defining seasons and in the end you know it 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 comes up like a a really most distinguished career
0: okay well howie morenz obviously had a famous career but one of the most one of the most mentioned things when talking about howie morenz was in fact the way that his career ended uh did you want to just go through that story
1: yeah when it was a game in uh in the forum in January of 1937. Uh, Canadians were playing the Blackhawks. Big Earl Siebert fell on Marenz. Marenz was was cutting for the net, and uh, uh, Siebert was checking him. Uh, Marenz, he, he knocked Marenz down. Marenz went into the boards. One of his uh, skates caught in the board. He rolled over. Siebert fell on him, and, uh, and how he ended up with uh, multiple fractures of his left leg. And almost immediately there were those who wondered if he would ever play again and how he was among them. He had a wife and three kids, three small kids, and their well-being depended on, on him earning a living. So there was some mental pain for him, no doubt, and of course there was physical pain, which the medical staff tried to control with painkilling drugs. Long ago, he had, uh, he had sort of replaced his shyness with a uh, gregarious nature that often made him the life of the party. And when he was unable to get to the party, the party came to him. He was liked by friend and foe, and and when teams came to Montreal to play, they would visit him in the hospital en masse. So here you've got a patient with no pension plan, worrying about his future as a pro hockey player, a player whose pain from a badly broken leg is being controlled by drugs. And then you've got a steady stream of visitors armed with some liquid refreshment, and all of them bent on cheering him up. And in the end, he got little rest in the hospital. He was in receipt of a lot of attention, maybe not as much healing. And, again, his sister, Gertie, told me in retrospect he should have been transferred to another hospital or been assured that um, he would get proper rest. In time, the visitors were restricted, but early in March, his spirits and, and general well-being began to fade Um they said, It was said, actually, that he'd had a, a nervous breakdown and uh, he died in his sleep uh, from, from heart failure. So uh, it, was a, it was a tragic end to a, to a pretty, pretty special uh, career.
0: Now, it's also part of hockey lore that um, people said he died of a broken heart because he can never play hockey again. Do you think that had any impact on his death?
1: There's no question in my mind that that was weighing heavily. On his mind, I, I I've heard that from a number of people. I know too that um, he uh, he didn't get a lot of rest. Um, and i I don't know how much i mean they, they were he was under the care of doctors and nurses, so I'm sure they were giving him the best care they thought they could. but um, he was certainly concerned. and uh, the he just he, he never did anything else. I mean that was that was it. He had three small kids. he was worried about. Their future. He was worried about his future. He didn't know where this was all going, and I, I'm sure that played heavily on him. I think, I mean, it's it's dramatic to say that he died of a broken heart. I'm sure his heart was broken, but I don't think a broken heart will necessarily kill you. Uh, I think you know, there are other complications that come into the mix, and whatever they were, I'm not entirely sure. There are different stories. Some say embolism. Some some say uh, that it was uh, you know some sort of a heart problem, but I, I do know that uh, that. Uh, he did die quietly. He did die in his sleep. Uh, when they went to check, in, check on him doing the nightly rounds, they found him dead. And uh, Toll Blake was in the hospital that night as well. Uh, Toll had uh, a broken wrist, I think, and he, he either had an operation or it had just been set or something. But anyway, he was in the hospital the night that uh, how he died. And he said that he'd uh, he'd seen him. He hadn't talked to him, but he'd seen him in his room and and how he appeared to be sleeping. Um, and that was sort of early in the evening. Later in the evening, he was found dead. So, um, you know, it makes for a nice story to say broken heart. I'm sure that the heart was broken, but, again, I don't say that. I've, I've never seen that listed as a cause of death.
0: Okay, well, speaking of broken hearts, then, did you also want to touch on the funeral uh, and the procession and the mourning of the Montreal Canadiens fans?
1: It was uh, probably the biggest, the biggest outpouring of... Of, of uh, in the, in the sports fraternity at that time. I mean, it was it was huge. The the forum was packed. Uh, thousands of people had gone by his uh, had, had paid their respects at the funeral home, and then on the on the morning of uh, March the 11th, the uh, his body was moved to center ice at the forum. It's estimated that another 50,000 people uh, walked by the uh, the forum in the forum that day. Uh, a lot of them. Uh, a lot of them remained for the service. Uh, the forum, other than a few seats in the north end, the forum was jam-packed. Um, when the service was over, there was there were about 15,000 people lining the streets outside as the cortege made its way up to um, uh, Mount Royal Cemetery. And um, the service uh, was about half an hour in length. It was carried live on CFCF, which I understand was was the first certainly for that station perhaps for uh, for a Canadian radio station to carry an athlete's funeral uh, live and uh, all of the all of the hockey teams were represented there was something like four four carloads of flowers that came to the forum from the funeral home when his body was moved uh, all of the Maple Leafs were there, they were in town to play the Maroons, the Maroons all showed up on mass to the funeral and it was quite a it was quite a moving, uh, quite a mo- moving uh, service, and and uh, a memorable, certainly a memorable day for anybody who was there.
0: Okay, well, since morenz there have been, <clears throat> pardon me, there have been countless uh, Canadians legends. You've had Richard Beliveau, Lafleur. Uh, what kind of legacy did morenz leave for those players of the Canadians?
1: The Canadians eventually came to be known for, what has been called their firebrand. Style of hockey. And I think Barenz had a lot to do with the genesis of that style. He played with passion, uh, and Montreal is a city that celebrates passion. He was talented, he was tough, he was explosive. He loved to play hockey more than just about anything. And night after night, he'd show up at the rink and, and do that. And the fans loved him for that. They loved him for his desire. Uh, they, they just, you know, the love was flowing both ways. Before he came to Montreal, the Canadians had won one Stanley Cup, and he was the spark plug that helped them win their next three. And along the way, he helped to sell the National Hockey League to cities south of the border. As hockey as hockey players go, I, I think he was one of a kind, and history never forgets those players. And if you look at the four statues outside the uh, the Bell Centre now in Montreal, his is one, and then the other three are, are of course, uh, Beliveau, uh, Lafleur, and uh, Richard, and those three came after, after uh, Marins, but all of them are sort of attached to this this, this notion of firebrand hockey, this passion. And I think um, Howie was maybe, maybe the guy who defined that style, and the Canadians have built on it uh, ever since.
0: Okay, well, thanks a lot, Dean. I really appreciate this interview. You obviously have a lot of knowledge of Howie Morenz, so this is going to be an excellent piece for Canada's History. Thank you for listening to Canada's History Podcast. I'm Ryan Kessler, and today I've been speaking with Dean Robinson, author of Howie Morenz, Hockey's First Superstar. Pick up your copy of the 2012 February-March issue of Canada's History magazine on newsstands now, and check out canadashistory.ca for more podcasts about Canadians and the world.